welcome, welcome, welcome to the Green Majority here this week. I don't know. I was going for a Futurama intro, and then I kind of <laughs> dropped the ball there. Sorry about that. Uh, cartoon voices next week. This week, Green Majority Radio, we're going to be uh, talking to filmmaker Diana Dive with a new upcoming CBC documentary called Farmland, discussing, uh, among other things, the uh, interrelationship between uh, immigrant farmers and the uh, expanding uh, global marketplace uh, that is wine, uh, particularly with uh, Chinese immigrants and the Chinese marketplace. Uh, very interesting look at Canadian farming, international forces, and the globalization of the world. Diana Dai will join us in the middle of the program. But first... I thought for a second I had to check my phone that Tim Nash is not here again because it seems like there's some finance today. Is that right? There is. There's a lot of finance. All right. Well, I'm going to give it to you guys, so take it away. Thanks so much. Uh, so, yeah. So, first of all, happy International Women's Day, everyone. Uh, it's uh, today. Uh, so, shout out to all of the incredible women who are working in this, uh, in, in to make the world a better place in the environment and everything else. Uh, things that are not making the world a better place, as a great pivot that I've just came up with right now, mm-hmm. uh, global finances. You don't have to congratulate yourself for your pivots. Oh, I was actually making fun of myself for the pivot. That's oh, that's what I was doing. I it was clearly a bad one. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, but, but we have three uh, three t- stories, and then and then one sort of uh, hint of good news at the end. Um, so so let's start with the let's start with the. I guess this is like, I, I should clarify, the first story is maybe not entirely bad news. Uh, it may be a, a signal, but it's not the best news. So, Munigree, uh global insurance companies, Dave. Global insurance firms <clears throat> like Munich Re, a firm that insures insurers, are reportedly becoming increasingly alarmed by the possibility of major property value losses caused by climate-related disasters like flooding, wildfires, and major storms. Munich Re reports that climate-driven problems have doubled the normal amount of insurable losses and have probably reached record heights. Last year, the company reported $160 billion from, uh, in losses from natural disasters, which is $20 billion higher than the 30-year average. The insurer's group ClimateWise reports, quote, a failure to take account of these risks could be damaging both for individual investors and lenders, but also for the financial system and economy as a whole. The Toronto Star reports, quote, While some investment strategists think climate change will offer opportunities, others warn of physical damage to commercial and residential real estate. The insurers recommend that investors look more closely at flood risks and construction materials, as well as incorporate climate projections into their models. Yeah, so a few years ago, we had uh, a couple of conversations around how reinsurers were going to be potentially a, a big leader on, uh, on, on taking action within climate change because they really were, the, were sort of the backbone of, of, of a part of insurance companies uh, that were really at risk to climate change. You know, so reinsurers insure insurance. Is this where the insurance stops or do they also have insurers? I, I think it's insurance all the way down. Okay. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, but what's disappointing is that they ha- is that they while they've they've said those things and they they clearly are paying attention to climate change they haven't really taken the extra step to begin really really encouraging us to actually move away from from investments that would be hurting this or increasing the chances towards this you know the, the, the lot of language here is is about mitigating not is about adapting to the problem rather than mitigating the problem uh, which is just you know it it, it 
at some point you can no longer adapt and mm. mitigation is required. And man, that Toronto star quote is, is just terrible. Like how can uh, we continue making money? Yeah, exactly. The quote again was while some investment strategies think climate change will offer opportunities, others warn of physical damage to commercial and residential real estate. This is, that is the big, that, that is such an understatement in 17 different ways. That's cold. That's yeah. cold. Yeah. It is, you know, first of all, you know, whether or not, uh, the, the ability to, to to open up places in the Arctic to drill more oil is not going to offset the fact that Florida will be underwater. There's just no version of that that's going to be happening. Uh, anything, any talk about opportunities that exist in, in, within climate change should come with a caveat that if you're advocating for those, uh, you're also advocating for the death of billions of people. These are investment strategists, Stefan, and I think climate change will offer economic opportunities. Yes, okay. Uh, speaking of, and, and speaking of of some of those concerns uh, and and the downward spiral we might be heading to, uh, there we are. There, the thing that we've again back on insurance. Insurance is a weird topic that has become very relevant uh, in, in climate change <laughs> talk today. But this is about property insurance. Uh, and throwing to you, Dave. Yes. Yeah, so <clears throat> rising sea levels are bringing many coastal communities into a negative economic feedback loop. Property values are dropping due to nuisance flooding, which in turn causes tax revenues to drop, leaving those communities with less money to allocate towards flood walls and other infrastructure that would have helped with the flooding. A new analysis estimates that South Carolina, New York, Florida, and New Jersey each lost over $1 billion from 2005 to 2017 from coastal flooding, with a total of $16 billion lost in 17 U.S. states. Businesses, governments, homeowners, and financial institutions are being put at increasing risk. Now, tipping cascades have already entered our vernacular in terms of the consequences of ecosystem degradation, becoming less and less predictable as changes begin to trigger one another and so on in a positive feedback loop. But we also risk cascading economic impacts from environmental fallout. In terms of sea level rise, homeowners could find the value of their properties falling below what their mortgage is worth, causing people to simply stop paying off their mortgages. Sea level rise could alone, therefore, cause a slow decay of the housing market in certain areas with greater total losses than the 2008 recession. Creditors are now beginning to respond, uh, giving lower ratings to governments that don't start mitigating or adapting to climate change, which means that those governments may not be able to borrow the necessary funds to protect their communities in the wake of a disaster. Inside Climate News quotes Matthew Eby, executive director of the flood risk analysis firm First Street Foundation, as stating, quote, We're going to have a much different conversation over the next 5, 10, 15 years about what's actually happening. We're hoping that this is the market, this is that market indicator that people can start paying attention to so that we can react. Uh, The quest for that market indicator. (laughs) Uh, The quest. Um, but so th- this is actually a huge, huge concern. Um, I don't want to undersell the fact that uh, that the, the way that this could play out is 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 not only just bad again for the uh, economics, but it's even worse for housing insecurity and and for low income wealth distribu- wealth wealth distribution. Uh, because one big major concern we experienced within when the when the when the hurricane hit Houston was this conversation about how much of Houston exists on a floodplain and how much of Houston is actually impossible to insure for floods because of that reason, and you're seeing this play out uh, with fires in California and, and all over the place where different natural disasters are are impacting housing, and and this is a serious problem. Because if you cannot, if, if if you cannot get insurance for the thing that will eventually harm your house, 
um, then that how then those housing prices those housing prices will drop and the places you can't get insurance will increase. Uh, if you can't get insurance, uh, that will draw in lower income people who are looking to uh, find a way to build wealth. The house houses are now the number one way humans humans build wealth uh, within themselves by consistently investing in, in, in owning property, and then they are the ones susceptible to have that all wiped away when a major natural disaster happens, leading them to have leading them to lose that entire wealth that they've built up uh, through trying to through investing in that, in that in the house. And so what this will do is it will only further concentrate wealth within the people who can afford to not live in the places that are super dangerous. And and it will encourage force people who are more low income to places that cannot be insured and then consistently undermine their wealth when these natural disasters come through. And so it's not just a conversation about uh, about how how about values of homes and something mortgages. This is a conversation actually about the ability for for individuals to build and maintain and hold on to wealth as they grow and alleviate and pull themselves uh, into 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 other into, into other economic classes. Basically, you know, this is this is a class issue uh, as much as it is anything else. And so, and so, if there's not a an action from the government to start protecting these places, we're only going to see this become more and more stratified. And and man, is that that is a serious risk for everyone. Um, and and so, like, there has to be a solution here. That is, you know, governments have to invest. Probably the government should maybe get involved in actually providing insurance into these houses that are that are that they now need to protect after they invest in protecting them in some capacity. Um, because if not, we're in for a serious uh, uh, difficulty. But don't you love the the, the glorious uh, freedom uh, creating capitalist model of every of every individual being absolutely responsible for their own material well being? I, I do not. Okay, I'm against that. Uh, shall we move on to this green investing? Yes, thing? yes, a slightly slightly more positive story. So uh, Ian Bickus published a piece last week in the Toronto Star uh, featuring our friend Tim Nash, which was on last week, as Saren mentioned, who was on last week, as Saren mentioned, about investors shifting to environmentally friendly portfolios in light of the potentially major economic costs of climate change. Investors could face major losses if they stick with high-polluting companies as markets move toward greener initiatives and governments hopefully begin to reel in the fossil fuel industry. Tim says in the piece, quote, investors need to get ahead of this curve, because if they wait until the political pendulum swings back and stricter regulations come into place, then at that point, they may be too late. The article <clears throat> mentions, as an example, the recently bankrupt Californian energy company PG&E, or Pacific Gas and Energy, whose equipment will probably be found responsible for the fire that destroyed the town of Paradise. Two years of record-setting wildfires have crushed the company with a $30 billion liability. The article also mentions how responsible investments, which consider environmental, social, and governance problems, have gone from $500 billion in 2010 to $2.1 trillion in, uh, dollars in 2017 in Canada alone. There are also new rating systems coming out which are giving investors more information about the companies they're supporting, as well as the sustainability rankings of mutual funds. <clears throat> but Tim warns uh, that banks often needlessly charge higher fees for sustainable mutual funds as if it is a kind of boutique service. Portfolio manager Patty Dolan is also quoted in the article as stating that responsible investing can yield higher returns and provide a more stable income. Yeah, and so there's, there was news actually today uh, that came out that sort of leads to that sort of jumps off that uh, that sort of concept, uh, which is that Norway's sovereign wealth fund, perhaps I believe it is the largest, if not one of the largest, 
uh, well, sovereign wealth funds that exist, uh, which is over one trillion dollars, uh, has has begun today. It announced today that they are beginning to uh, to to di- not they don't they, they don't use the word divest, but they are beginning to relinquish relinquish a lo- some of their their holdings in in oil companies. Uh, they currently own thirty seven billion dollars of shares in oil companies such as BP, Shell, uh, and in France in France's total, um, and so they. They are basically saying that they they want to they're concerned about the price of oil staying as low as it is, and they're trying to diversify away from from oil. Um, and given that Norway's this wealth fund was built entirely by or not entirely but very heavily by their own nationalized oil company and uh, oil production in, in Norway itself, uh, this is a pretty significant marker. This is their this is them and this is. If you ever want to understand what uh, people uh, like myself say Canada should be doing uh, with 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 the oil sands and with our own oil, oil wealth, Norway is the example. Uh, you know, they nationalized it. They they've they've saved a bunch of money and they're using that money to to invest in their own populace and then and prepare themselves for the future market crash that they see coming and that they are now actually beginning to to move off of oil specifically so their wealth fund can be protected as well. You know, in the in the article that there's many articles about in, in the article, uh, they are quite quoted as as still being pretty pretty iffy on it. You know, they're still very much being like Norway will still be in the oil business. We're not moving entirely away from oil. We're just trying to sort of diversify assets. They're not they're not trying to sort of just throw a throw a throw a spike into the entire oil economy. But this is definitely an example of an organization uh, of, a, of a country that is saying we are concerned about this future carbon bubble, and so we are going to pull ourselves out of it uh, piece by piece. Um, and so that is an example of, 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 a, of, of a one way that we're seeing a bit of a tipping point um, towards this sort of this theoretical and eventual collapse of the carbon bubble, which is something we've talked about a couple of times on the show. But uh, if you can diversify away from oil, uh, be like Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund and, and consider it uh, or else, uh, you know, many bad things will happen. Um, and with that, I think we're trying to get to an, a, a music break uh, pretty quickly so we can get to our interview. Uh, and so I'm going to throw to Saren uh, in just a half a second to find out what our music break is. Uh, and then we'll be back with a Darby. And then we got a whole bunch of stories and, and Lauren Latour is joining us for the final section. Uh, so don't go anywhere. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. All right, we are back. Hey, are you awake? You are now. (laughs) If you're into that sort of thing, that's a a decent song. I like that. Uh, It's part of my music process here is that I Google Canadian bands like five minutes before the show. Wow. (laughs) You never know what you'll find. It's amazing. All right, now back down to business. So I am joined in studio. Uh, we are very privileged to be joined in studio. It's always nice to have our guests here so I can look at them, even if it's through a pane of glass. Uh, we are now uh, joined uh, by, is it Diana Dye? Is that yes. correct? Oh, and first thing, important rule of interviewing people is make sure their mics are turned on here. Hello? I can hear you. Can you hear me now? We're getting a little better. <laughs> Sorry about that. that. That would be awfully rude of me, wouldn't it? Maybe well, we're going to host a, a one-sided interview. Uh, <laughs> questions, silence, and then questions again. Yes. 
right. Well, we all know that I can talk for an hour. That's not, that's not the point here. Okay, so Diana, I, I had the privilege of watching the documentary right before we came on air, as is my way. Um, and uh, I want to, I want your help uh, just to set the the the, la the landscape here, the farmland, if you will, a little bit, because we're we're telling sort of a number of small stories with one larger theme, and so that larger theme is. Uh, of the uh, farming industry sort of, but it mixed into the culture. It's like the cultural mixture with the economy of farming. But I'd like you to do a better job, please. Uh, let the audience know what, it, what precisely is it here we're talking about. Oh, my uh, documentary is really about um, the... I would say, you know, uh, farming businesses are usually a very traditional business. And, uh, you know, farms live there and farm their land for many generations and the community are very close-knit. But now what's happening uh, is you see the foreign investors and uh, immigrants start into this farming business. So as I would say, it's kind of a changing uh, the face of the uh, farming, traditional Canadian farming um, communities, or changing land landscaping, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of the, I think a lot of those stories, many people will find very understandable. The story of, um, the, the, first of all, the immigrant story is not a new one. Many, most, the, over, uh, I forget what the, in Toronto at least, you know, yes. we, we were at one point over a half immigrant. So that's not new, but uh, not new as far as a story that's being told, uh, which is not to say that it shouldn't be told, but you're telling a very specific story, which is immigrants to small towns, to small communities that are not just very integral, but have been integral and sort of almost inward facing for generation after generation after generation. It's a very different process. Maybe we can start um, by you introducing David Fu a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, in the... Uh, rarely you see the Asian immigrants they settle on farms because the most immigrant come you know immigrant to Canada you go to big city like a Toronto Montreal so um, and again the farming is very traditional thing you see like people working there for generations you hardly see people um, with different background come in so David Fu and he was a farmer in China obviously he has uh, special connections to the land. So, um, so um, he he uh, when he came to Canada, he landed in, the, in Vancouver, like most immigrants. But then he got sick of Vancouver after twelve years. Then the one of his friend tell him, you know, why don't you go to farmland in Saskatchewan? You know, there's pretty the great decent price there. You know, it's not expensive. So he went there, and as soon as he sees the beautiful land in Saskatchewan, he said. I was shocked, you know. He said, "You know, this is like a refresh my memory." Mm. Like you know, took him back to the childhood mm. when he was farmer there. So he immediately and he bought the farmland. He want he wanted to become farmer. And one of the things you point out right at the beginning about um, not just David, but I think it's very important for David's story, was that actually being a farmer in China is a very different thing than being a farmer here, both from the con both from the point of view of who owns the land, but also as far as social status. Perhaps you can talk about that a little. Yes. Um, in China, you know, um, as a farm cannot own the land, they uh, cannot own the land because um, farms owned by government. And uh, also, like you can, the 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 land they farm is usually small scale, and uh, but in Canada you can buy the farmland, and also you know the high tech industry, and um, and most most farmer in China I would say they're pretty poor. 
and they um, they they usually turn to run away from farm. Mm. But he is completely different style, you know. And you have a good lifestyle here, you know. You have make way more enough money to live, you know. This is completely different. And social in China because you're so poor, so the farming social status is very low. Uh, actually, is lower than professionals. Mm. And so I won't say it's that respected. Not as not. Um, I'm not saying it's not respectful, but it's not as um, the social status in here in, in, right. in Canada. Farm, you know, it's very respect, very respectful career in Canada, mm. but it's uh, not quite same in China. Right. And do you, and my my suspicion, uh, but perhaps you can comment, is that that land ownership part has to do with that, right? In Canadian, you are a business owner, and in China, the same job, you're really just you're just working for the government. I mean, it's not literally that simple, but it, it it's it does give it a different uh, impact as far as what you're doing, who you are. You've made yourself or do you work for the government? I think there's a real important difference there. But yeah. when and of course, Dave, so David, we're we're talking about the story, and David came here and and saw lots of opportunity, and then what happened? Yeah, a lot, a lot, and then he bought he bought land. Then what happened? Uh, you have to start from zero. You know, he worked in, in uh, as a farmer in China, but then experience, you know, is completely. You cannot be used in here because you have first of all your small scale in China. Secondly, a lot of you like manually, like you have to use hand, and you know, use the tools. It's nothing. Nothing to do with high tech machines. Not like here. You have a combine. You have a cedar, and which is controlled by GP- GPS. Mm. You know, it's not like this in China. Yeah, and so you the- have to learn. <laughs> you have to learn from scratch. And that that was what was really was really interesting was sort of uh, coming was watching uh, David sort of have this uh, passion as the his family history as as a farmer, but then also feeling you showed him feeling very out of place. I think very accurately in the sense that in this space, I have no idea what's going. On. <laughs> like you sort of you, you sort of very. I, I think you you captured in film the 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 precise moment when he realized quite what he'd signed up for. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Also, I I, I think because they were. Comp- Completely new to the industry in Canada, and they they did not know anybody there. So it's kind of loneliness too. They they don't really um, you know they don't really have a, like a strong support system there, and basically they were outsider. So it make it even more difficult. And also because um, um, even David talked about in the film, and uh, as they have to pay everything upfront in cash. Where locals, they can pay the things after they harvest or after they sell their grains. But they're so new, they don't have a track record. So local really don't, did not trust them, you know, in the beginning. Yeah. And they even later on, they even couldn't, uh, you know, borrow the money from the uh, farm. Farm Credit Canada because they don't have a track record because they are new farmers. So, so they actually came across uh, much more difficulties than locals. Yeah. And one of the other things you do a good job of highlighting in the film as well is that a big part of how these communities operate is through um, that community power, right? It, it doesn't matter if the two farmers next to each other are both trying to sell apples or whatever. If somebody's combine breaks, everybody from town goes to fix it, right? That's yes. one of the things you talked about. And so that really has, the, and that's it, that's not just sort of like a nice thing, like that's part of what gets these really can occasionally quite struggling communities by over the years is that they help each other. And so this aspect of being the outsider and not being trusted and everybody saying, well, what are the Chinese doing here? And sort of, you know, that way that people do where they sort of refer to you as a country, 
right? What, yeah. are, the, what are the Chinese doing here? As if you that per, farmer works for the government or yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, and getting that, and the, the, not only do you feel like outsiders, but it also means you don't have access to any of those support structures that aren't just nice to haves; they're often need to haves. You can't function. You can't do it all on your own. And so that was really the biggest part of David's struggle. And so one of the one of the things I wanted to highlight was that really jumped out out me from the film was the, sort of a scene where the, the community is talking about, you know, being a little bit unsure about these Chinese people yeah. uh, because, because they're not going to fit in, right? That's the fear. We have a community and that's understandable, right? Because their community is dependent on that interconnectedness. And so I think there's a legitimate fear there of that connectedness being broken, right? I don't think it's entirely like racism. I don't, I don't, I don't I I'm sure there is some of that, but, I it's, agree. Yeah. but it's, but there's that other component, right? It's because their community operates on that closeness. And so you show some of the community expressing those concerns. And then the next shot is David wanting nothing more than the exact same thing. I just wish that I could be part of this community. Yeah. <laughs> and so it really showed that disconnect about the, the, everyone being afraid and mistrusting each other when really everyone just wants the same thing. Right? Yes, that's that's so true. You know, um, it takes time. You know, in the beginning, really, like, um, you know, uh, when uh, I interviewed uh, one previous owner of David's farm and uh, Bob, and he told Tony, he said, I, I'd never told you guys before, you know, when I sold land to you guys, people in a coffee shop, you know, the coffee shop is where farmers usually get in together, talk about, you know, daily stuff. And said, Oh, you sold it to Chinese? Did you? You know? <laughs> so, you know, obviously, Tony was, wow, you know, um, Tony was kind of shocked to hear that. Um, but uh, obviously, you can tell, like, uh, they were not very welcome in the beginning. But I think it's understandable because they think, you know, you guys, they never see, uh, they never seen, uh, have never seen any Chinese farmer there before. And they think, you know, how, do you, how, how are you going to work in the farm? You know, you don't have any farming background because people in the, lo the local people, they really have a strong connection to the land. They live there, farm there for generations. They want someone come in to take good care of land. And you think, oh, Chinese come, you know, oh, what are I going to do that? They have money, but can they do the job? You know, there's a doubt in the back of mind. And so I take the... Take you know, uh, take uh, Davy and Tony, the family, and lots of time. You know, time they they have to work hard. They have to prove themselves to locals. Hey guys, we're here. We take the farming seriously. You know, so and uh, but uh, Davy said actually most of farmers pretty helpful once they see. Yeah. Oh, you guys here farming. Yeah. You take farming seriously. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's. Uh, it was, it was really nice to see that. It's sort of like when you're, I, I sort of felt like, you know, when you're, uh, there's little feelings you usually only get when you're watching um, like uh, Hollywood movies, right? Entertainment movies, which yeah. is, oh, what's going to happen? Or, oh, I hope the good guy makes it. And you kind of know that they do. But when you're watching a documentary, you don't. And so I, uh, you don't know the, if it's going to work out, right? Yes. This is a real life story. The good guy might not win. And so I've really found myself doing something I don't normally do when I'm watching documentaries, which is like rooting for David. It was like, come on, you can pull through. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, tell me a little bit about it. It, it had the impression of uh, just the way it was some of the phrasing. It had the impression of them being filmed over multiple years. Uh, how long was this project? Let's talk a little bit about the project itself. Yeah, actually, I started to um, film um, David Fu's family in 2014. Mm. Um, back then, they were... They were very happy because they had several good years, and they said, "Wow, we can do the business," you know. And uh, the summer, they also asked the previous owner to help them out. So uh, everything looks rosy, <laughs> but then until they get hit by the very bad drought year, yeah, 
which is twenty seventeen, and so and you know, when I twenty twenty fourteen when I was there, I can feel their happiness, but at the same time, I can feel their you know、uh, they kind of struggling.、Uh, Wanted to work hard to be proved by local people to be recall recognized by locals, but when twenty seventeen, um, I can feel they kind of reluctant to be filmed,、mm. because you know why they hit by very bad drought, so、um, they lost a lots of money, and because they they were new farmer, they are new farmers, they lack of the experience, they so they got hit much hit much harder than locals, so they said, oh, well we look bad on the TV, you know we lost some money now, you know it's kind of a some,、um, yeah. um, it's 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 the hesitation to be filmed. Right. Yeah, but then I told David, David, that's a part of your real life. That's a documentary. Yeah, you're happy, but sometimes you struggle. <laughs> yeah, you know, as a life. We're not、um, we're not making a Hollywood movie, despite、yes. what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that was that was really exciting. So maybe we、uh, we've just got a、uh, we've got a few minutes left, uh, uh, a little bit of time.、Um, I was wondering, let's talk just a little bit about、uh, about that specific last thing you brought up, which was the drought.、Um, so not necessarily specifically for David and his family, but just、um, sort of what you learned about Canadian farm the the、um, the precariousness of Canadian farming ecosystem.、Uh, I'll just start you off by mentioning that the word suicide came up in your documentary as well. Let's talk about that a little. Yeah, actually, you know, farming. I, I when I interviewed a student. Which、uh, he is a fourth generation farmer in Saskatchewan, yeah, and、uh, he said, you know, when people look at the farmers, they think, hey, the farmers making lots of money. Look at it, a million dollars uh, 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 equipment, you know, combine and see the actually farming life. I would say pretty risky. Especially, you know, for the mercy of Mother Nature, you never know. Maybe you had a year flood, you may have a drought, and can wipe off all the money you had before previous years. So Stuart, obviously, and and his uh, um, uh, fellow farmers in the local area, and they all hit hit very hard by the drought in 2017, and some farmers really took their life there, which is very sad.、Um, but it's, There's not much you can do with Mother Nature, you know, and so Stu always say, you know,、um, even Stu said, oh, maybe one day I quit farming because there's there's not something you can do when with Mother Nature, you know. Yeah, I think everyone. It's、so、a risky you, business. I would、yeah. say farming. Yeah, I you, think everyone you interviewed at one point said, at least musingly, maybe we should quit. <laughs> yes, at least once.、Yeah. But then we eat, we need the food. Yeah, <laughs> we need the、yeah. grain. <laughs> we need them. <laughs> I, I only wish that we could,、uh, Stefan.、Uh, I only wish that we could share this conversation with our with the economists that we were discussing in our previous section. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need know, food. You know, things run out. Right. It's, yeah. It's not just a stock loss. Sometimes those stocks connect to real things we need. Yes. Um. So. <laughs> Uh, okay, so yeah, we've just we've got a couple minutes left. So maybe、um, there, was there anything in the in the documentary that you felt like didn't make the cut? Anything you'd wish you'd been able to to share? Any funny moments that that didn't make it in? Well, CBC version is only forty four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I have another version about、uh, feature feature version a little bit longer.、Um, I think just uh, um, one thing I really want to mention is.、Um, As the impact of the farmland,、um, I, I the one thing I did not、uh, make、uh, cut in this、uh, film is,、um, I think a particular local feel upset. I can feel for it. 
Oh, you talk a money moment, I'm, uh, a funny moment, but I'm talking about serious things. Sure. <laughs> and they said, you know, uh, lots of, you know, some foreign investors, when they buy the land, they treat land like commodity. You know, they just buy the land and they don't film it. Uh, they don't farm on it. So they just wait land, pri- land and, you know, price uh, go up, then they sell the land. So that's really upsetting. You know, locals. You know, mm-hmm. you, you need to take care of land when you uh, when you buy it, when you bought it. Sure. So and the uh, land needs to be maintained, right? So it's, yeah. not, it's not just about unproductive farmland. That the quality of that farmland would actually degrade if it's not being properly cared for yeah. and maintained. And, yes. So farmland is not stock. Is not stock. Yeah. You buy it and wait, price one up and go up, and then you sell it. So that's not right. That's, that's one thing I, I, you know, I saw that I, I actually um, in, in the farmland in, in Saskatchewan, there's a lots of weeds grow there, you know, so. Yeah, well, it was. I, I very much enjoyed uh, watching it. And uh, Diana, one of the things I have to say, I watch a lot of documentaries that get sent to me. And I, I was really impressed because you, there were so many threads to this story, but you managed to keep it together. So I, I think kudos to you on that. Um, it's very difficult to tell such a uh, story with so many threads. And I, I think you made a, a consistent narrative out of it. Thank so you. as usual, of course, I've never said not to recommend it, but as usual, absolutely recommend uh, going and watching that. And you can do that Friday, March 15th at 9 p.m. on CBC Docs uh, POV. Um, uh, the gem. Can you correct? Uh, is that uh, is that correct? Is there any other gem? dates people should be looking for? Yeah. So see, uh, st- we'll stream on CBC Gem on all the devices. CBC.ca/watch. So you can watch a documentary twenty four hours anytime, anywhere, as long as you're in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> What's the documentary called? Uh, my farmland. My farmland. Yes, my so, farmland. Uh, yeah. And uh, we'll get you. Uh, we'll get David some links to get on the website and all that stuff. So if, uh, as usual, if you can't catch me while we're talking here, check the website greenmajority.ca after the show. And Diana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna uh, need uh, Stefan to kill sixty seconds for me here while I use uh, be do my other job. All right, all right. Uh, well, thank you very much. We'll be coming back after the music break uh, with some highlights on. Uh, on the Cana- on a new Canadian climate watchdog, uh, talking about clouds. Uh, the clouds try one. to crush eight stories. Eight stories. Clouds. NASA. Global fish. A very short word about a cyclone. Uh, whales. Animals in the UK and the US recycling. If we can get through all eight with Lauren, we will do our best. Right. Uh, what is our reason? We are back now. You're listening live to The Green Majority here at CIUT at 9.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. I'm going to continue getting Lauren on the phone in the interim. Stefan. Yeah, so we're going to go through eight stories, uh, starting uh, with the Canadian climate watchdog. Uh, So let's go there. Yes, so a multi-million dollar grant will soon be awarded to a not-for-profit company that the federal government decides will be our next independent climate watchdog, finally replacing the National Roundtable on the Environment and the Economy, which was defunded by Stephen Harper in 2013. The winning organization will propose an institute of some kind in order to research, analyze, and advise Canada's Paris Agreement progress. The UK's 10-year-old Committee on Climate Change Uh, which is allegedly able to hold its government accountable for its climate efforts, has influenced the process, as Liberal MPs have been meeting with its representatives in recent weeks. In an exchange with the National Observer, the UK Group's chief executive Chris Stark 
said that he supports major market mechanisms as the key to the easiest kind of green transition. He believes that government should work on making green initiatives as cheap as possible um, and then letting the market take over. The UK has been able, for instance, to get the oil company Shell to invest heavily in offshore wind using government incentives. Ah, giving oil companies money to invest in renewable energy. What a what a unique attempt. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Um, anyways, I believe we do have Lauren on the phone now. Uh, Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Ah, I'm pretty well. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, since, uh, since you jumped in on the middle of that segment, I'm not sure if you caught the whole story, but uh, uh, anything on this, on this climate watchdog or shall we move on? Uh, you can move. I, yeah, I caught so little of it. Yeah. All right, great. Uh, so basically, this is this is a a re a re a recreation of something in 2013. Uh, it certainly is something that is quite needed, uh, especially if, if if you've been paying attention to to Canadian politics the past couple of weeks. Uh, there is certainly something uh, good about separating uh, the watchdogs from the government itself. Uh, so this is a a positive step. Um, I'm not exactly. Uh, I sincerely hope that their solution is not to just give more money to oil companies as a way to hope that they invest in something else, but will time will tell. Arms length and policy oriented. Yes, uh, arms length is the key. Uh, policy oriented is nice. Um, where we where we had you next, Dev? So uh, U.S. recycling. Uh, cities across the United States have been burning hundreds of tons of recyclable material every day for the past year since China placed strict quality control measures on the recycling it's willing to import. They have now been accepting only clean and unmixed materials, no longer desiring to be the destiny of American waste. The change has represented a 40% increase in recyclables that the United States has now to deal with, and it currently has no sound way of doing so. The plastics and paper materials are, of course, being burned in uh, black and Latino communities that are already experiencing major health problems as a result of living close to these incinerators, which were already burning thousands of tons of trash every single day. Some argue that burning recyclables is better on greenhouse gases than burying them in landfills. As of now, only 9% of U.S. plastics are being recycled in the United States. I really like that, the argument, like, burning is better than burying. What about neither? Mm. Is neither an option? Um, uh, but since we're going through a whole bunch of stories, Lauren, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sort of pause and let you jump into the first, first then I'll add anything I have. So uh, any thoughts on this U.S. recycling story? Yeah, I feel like this is a story that I've seen covered by a number of different um, agencies. Uh, one of them, like, I know, like, 60 Minutes did a big piece on it a couple months ago now, I think. And, and I think what is often left out of those conversations um, Dave, you touched on just momentarily, but like the environmental racism aspect of it is that when we improperly deal with our waste, it's marginalized and, and racialized communities that have to deal with those consequences. Um, and, and although Canada might not have the same issues that the states is having right now, um, a really good example of that is, is uh, the landfill situation out on the East Coast uh, between Halifax and North Preston. I, I don't have the expertise and the knowledge to go into it, but listeners should definitely uh, plug into that because there's some amazing... Uh, pieces that have come out of out of the stories out, out on the East Coast. Um, but more than anything with this story, I feel like it's such a good example of how in so many ways issues around waste, um, contrary to what the hashtag zero waste movement might have us believe, is, is really sort of out of consumer hands. It, it, at a certain point, it doesn't matter how diligently you, you sort your plastics or like if you're avoiding black plastics because they aren't recyclable in your city, if, if, if you're faithfully cleaning out that yogurt tub... Um, if your government isn't dedicating the resources to making sure these 
<laughs> these recycling systems are, are up in place and actually being used properly, um, your personal diligence, as, as admirable as it may be, um, is sort of all for naught. And, and that's not to say that you shouldn't recycle, that you shouldn't sort of make those individual lifestyle choices. But, but again, I know I say this like every week, but if you aren't sort of pairing those lifestyle choices with political and policy engagement, you're sort of just taking one step forward and five steps back because, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the 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 requirement to to remove yourself from the system is 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 a, a more of a paramount than and to obviously to, to advocate for sincere exchange because this this is this is also shows goes to you how widespread it is right. This is a decision in in China that is now that is rippling across uh, across the world. You know, I know that even recycling uh, recycling organizations here in on in Toronto are, are, are waste companies here in Toronto are having hard times recycling uh, current waste because of this decision. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not just it's, it's all over. It's a it's a global uh, impact from this one from this decision, um, and clearly our government is not up the task to, to find another way. Uh, a great uh, a great podcast that also talked about this sort of thing specifically from this angle uh, of of the fact that of China's decision to do this uh, is ninety nine percent invisible. Did one call a, a show called National Sword, uh, which was uh, which is very good and funnily enough came from a zine written by someone uh, who's been on the show before, Hilary Pretko. So uh, it's a kind of a it's a it's a fun connection to to this. And uh, very, you know, again, it's a, it's a great document, uh, not documentary podcast episode. Uh, but let's move on to the next story, Dave. Small carnivores are on the rise in the UK after hunting and pollution problems have been reduced. This has occurred since the 60s, and most carnivores are still at historical lows, but it is an upswing that seemed very unlikely a few decades ago. Yeah, that's nice. Well, let's, mm-hmm. let's move on to whales. A young humpback whale has washed up dead in a swamp in the Amazon, very far from where whales tend to migrate around this time of year. Scientists are not certain how it died or why it ended up where it did. Well, that's much worse news. Uh, let's go to the. How's our How's our mine whale doing? Is our mine mine whale? The, oh, it, it beached. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, there's one, one more. The one more single sentence won the cyclone. The northern hemisphere has officially experienced its first Category Five cyclone. Oh, that's great news. Okay, uh, so for those three <laughs> animals in the UK, whales and cyclones, uh, Lauren, what do you Wait a minute, are we sure those aren't related? <laughs> Hurricane and a whale it's not supposed to be? Just saying. <laughs> Maybe. Um, okay, so touching on those three in that order, uh, more small carnivores, probably, I don't know, from an ecosystem standpoint, is that a good thing? Or like, is, 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 is like the chipmunk community really screwed in the UK now? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to find the organizing labor uh, force of the chipmunks to find out how I'm, they feel. I'm pretty this. sure that the predators are less respons- are more responsive to feed than uh, the feed, right? So uh, if the predators' are, populations are increasing, I would think that means that their prey populations are increasing because uh, they don't tend to outpace their prey. But uh, that's just my guess. Well, let's hope. That uh, makes sense. Yeah. Okay, that's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Good news for the UK. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Like as as in like oh, if we see an explosion in whale population, we can make some conclusions about the uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, what's the word krill. krill krill. We can make some assumptions about the krill population. That type of thing. Right. Right. Of course. Okay. Um, as for that beached whale, that's a real bummer. Um, don't have much of a comment on it yeah. beyond that. Um, and then as for the cyclone. That is sort of interesting. I wish I'd paid more attention in my physical geography class when Dr. LaRock talked about the Coriolis effect mm. and, and how that and how that kind of plays into like 
weather patterns and temperature changes and, and why it is so weird that a Category 5 cyclone is happening in the Northern Hemisphere because theoretically it shouldn't be able to, like, jump that border right along the equator. Um, but that's happening in increasing, yeah, in, in increasing rates. And, and that's kind of scary because it means that our, that, that like, yeah, the jet stream is changing in ways that we can't really account for and predict. But again, I'm, I, yeah, I should have paid more attention in, in first year geo. Anybody, can anybody take over here? Well, no, I, I feel like, I feel like, I think that that's going to be a, a trend in the next coming 15 years is everyone sort of being there. I wish I had paid more attention when they told me this so I'd understand why everything is going haywire. Um, but well, it's we, like, it's yeah, like so. one of those things, uh, it's like the, getting an alert on your phone. Well, that's like, okay, well, we got alerts on my phone. Okay, but if you're getting an alert like a phone on your child's forehead, something is fundamentally wrong. <laughs> like that, something really had to go wrong for that to be even possible but because these issues are complicated that's that's harder to discern but that's very very it shouldn't be possible that means something's really wrong yeah there's a and and i think as you see the the, a fear that I have that is sort of deep inside me that I don't uh, speak too often is about the the failing jet streams and the ocean currents. Those are the two. Those are the two things that are sort of both invisible and weakening and would overnight change serious amounts of, of global climate. Well, the climate deniers would be right because we would get a spontaneous ice age. <laughs> well, at least in the UK. Um, but let's move on to global fish. The global maximum sustainable fish catch has been found to have dropped majorly over the past 80 years, stunning researchers who did not necessarily expect to see that ocean warming has already had such significant impacts on fisheries. An article from Inside Climate News also discusses a second study, which has shown that there are $23 billion annual dollars at stake for the fishing and seafood industry if we fail to remain at 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. On the other hand, complying with the more ambitious goals of the Paris Agreement and remaining at 1.5 degrees will result in an annual catch some 9.5 million metric tons higher than business as usual, which will probably bring us uh, to at least 3.5 degrees. That is business as usual. 90% of this risk is being shouldered by so-called developing countries. Yeah. Uh, Lauren? Oh, my God. We're in, in Canada, we're, we're so concerned with what to do with oil workers who we have to transition into different industries. And I think globally, we're going to have to do the exact same thing with, with folks in the fishing industry, because at a certain point, these these myriad of fisheries are going to start collapsing all around the world. And, and yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen in an extremely marginalized, largely like resource resource poor communities, um, because those are that's where so much of our fishing happens. And and. And there just aren't going to be any fish left. So I, th- I think that's something that's going to be a real big economic, I don't know, pickle that, that we're in is, is figuring out what to do with all those laborers who, who don't have jobs anymore in 20 years. Yeah, well, and, and not to mention just the level of which that, that devastation would impact, uh, you know, the, uh, the ocean's ability to absorb carbon. Right. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is a this is, again, as an example of one of those different feedback loops that does three or four different bad things at the same time. Uh, I got full training as a full stack web developer for which there's lots of de- uh, lots of work right now uh, in six months. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure they can figure something out. <laughs> yes. The, well, I, I, the, 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 I would say that we can probably retrain all of the oil workers. I'd have a much harder time retraining all of the people who fish, mainly because we need to eat the food again uh, to come back to our middle segment. Uh, food is real uh, and you can't retrain everyone. <laughs> One to not make food because they eventually still need food. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let's move on to the cloud story because this cloud story is a doozy. The well-known Bill McKibben-founded environmental group 350.org shows its name for the number of parts per million of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that we need to stay safely at or below. 
so that number was 350 parts per million. We currently sit at around 411 parts per million and are steadily increasing that amount. Now, a new study has come out that shows at 1,200 parts per million, all clouds in the upper regions completely disappear, causing the global climate to increase in temperature by 8 degrees Celsius. We are already、uh, heading for an unpredictably devastating 4 degrees Celsius of global warming by the end of the century. I earlier said 3.5, whatever. So, 1,200 <laughs> parts per million is admittedly a long way off. But it may not be as far away as it seems, since melting permafrost and dying vegetation could release gases like methane and double our atmospheric greenhouse concentration in a short time. There are other triggers as well that could cause a sudden spike in greenhouse gas concentration. The study is not in itself an apocalyptic prophecy, but it gives further support to the uneasy suggestion that there are a lot of very grave unknowns when it comes to the global ecosystem. Yeah,、uh, so this, this story sort of swept、uh, the, the climate Twitter sphere for a bit,、um, yeah, two weeks ago、uh, when, it, when it came out. Because Both of us?、Um, yeah, it was everywhere. Uh,、um, and, uh, and so it's, it's quite the story. Uh, but uh, Lawrence, what do you? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I feel like for, for a lot of folks,、uh, the difference between 411 parts per million and 1,200 parts per million is just so vast that it doesn't seem like that, that's a possibility anytime in the next. Century or so, but, but we have to remember that、uh, I think we surpassed 350 parts per million back in like 1987, I think.、Um, and for a couple of years, that was because we were, we were rising in increments of, of, of kind of just like one, or like, yeah, increments of one. It was like 350 and then 351 parts per million the following year. And, and we're, we're sort of past that. It's, it's, it's becoming like an exponential shift every year. Every year, we're going up by, by more than. One part per million. We're going up by, by four or five、um, in some cases. So it's, it's hard to predict when that 1,200 parts per million is, is a potential possibility. It could, like, I, I didn't read the article most recently, so I don't know if scientists are, are predicting that it happens in 70 years or 80 years or 200 years, but from, from what I can guess, it's probably kind of unpredictable and we're not too sure. When we could hit that 1200 parts per million. Yeah, I believe the article itself was saying we're roughly on track to hit it by the end of the century.、Um, mm-hmm. But also, man, is the world different at that point? Like, it's one of those things where it's like, this is, this is us. They'll come back at this and discuss when, when Armageddon has occurred and be like, oh, we did predict it. Oh, that's interesting.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, you know, that's the thing. But we're so close to doing all eight stories. We only have one more.、Uh, so I want to get to it.、Uh, NASA, let's do it. The LA Times is reporting that Texas government officials, <clears throat> as well as the Federal Environmental Protection Agency in the United States, refused to allow NASA scientists to make any air studies of the release of toxic chemicals from the thousands of refineries and chemical plants in and around Houston after the 2017 Hurricane Harvey,、uh, because those、uh, plants were obviously flooded or damaged and released those chemicals.、Uh, U.S. scientists were therefore explicitly prevented by the U.S. government from protecting U.S. Citizens from chemical industry fallout. Lauren, I'm t h r o w to you. Oh my gosh. I, I, have, I, I have no comment on this one. I'm、That's、sorry, very, folks. No, no worries. This, well, this is, I'm, I'm going to throw back to you actually your first comment, which is this is the, the type of example of,、uh, of what happens、um, when, when you, A, actually throw back to the very beginning of the show,、uh, when you don't properly protect your, your infrastructure from climate change.、Uh, you know, Houston, no, there's, there's a known fact that Houston will experience a hurricane that is big enough to basically 
wipe to not just impact these in somewhat, but to actually wipe them out, which would then devastate the whole ecological region. And this has been known for about 15, 20 years. And Houston, the city of Houston has not done anything to stop it. Um, and, and the second thing is that the people who are impacted by this, this is another example of environmental racism, right? This is another example of, of the people who, who are being, who are in, around and close to these refineries. Um, you know, these are low income, marginalized people. Uh, and so the idea that the U.S. government just sort of decided to look the other way into four a government agency to not uh, understand what was happening is is kind of the quintessential example of knowing that the people you're harming are not powerful enough to stop you and therefore just deciding to do so, right? That's what this is. Um, this is the U.S. government refusing to take uh, responsibility. And, and honestly, it seems like it, it feels like it's a it's a PR decision that they only succeeded in um, uh, because no one was paying enough attention to actually sort of report on this uh, or to give power enough to the people who are being harmed by this. And to the extent where maybe even these people didn't even know. You know, maybe this is something that five, ten years from now will become a big scandal because there'll be these people who have been impacted now, um, uh, who who didn't weren't even aware uh, that this was happening. Um, and so, a great example and a great another reason why uh, supporting journalism is very important because when the government fails, you need someone to pay attention. Uh, so, shout out to the LA Times uh, to 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 for actually doing some work here on this. Um, but with that, uh, any last comment, Lauren, before I throw to Saren? Nope, I don't believe so. All right, so that, were, that is the show. We managed to get through all eight stories at the end. Uh, didn't think we'd do it, but we did it. Uh, and uh, that's the whole show. So well, it's, it's a good thing we have ten seconds left because I was I I was gonna I was gonna jump in with a joke and then you said we had one minute left, but I have time. So the post uh, uh, post apocalyptic game that I enjoy is called Fallout. In this post apocalyptic world, they use bottle caps like from Pop uh, as currency. So I was thinking maybe in our post apocalyptic post climate change world, uh, maybe I told you so's will be the currency. <laughs> <laughs> I had 15 I told you so. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. Shh. Bye. <laughs>